0: You're listening to Comedy Central.
1: April 29, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. Yes, tonight is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And you've probably seen him on the campaign trail. Pete Buttigieg is here, everybody. Yes, yes. I am so excited. We're gonna to talk to him about everything. Reparations, Mike Pence, what it's like to be one of only 600 Democrats running for president. So exciting. But before that, we've gotta catch up on the news. And today, my friends, there is a lot of news. In fact, I'll be honest, I don't even know if we have enough time to catch up on all the news. Nobody does. Luckily, though, not enough time is just the right amount of time for a little segment we call Ain't Nobody Got Time For That. <laughs> president Trump loves bragging about the records that he set as president. Higher stock markets, lowest unemployment, and bestest brain ever. And over the weekend, he added a new record to the list. The Washington Post
0: says that President Trump's lie count since entering office has now hit five digits. The newspaper's fact-checking team says that Trump has now told more than 10,000 lies or misleading claims. This is a remarkable number for a U.S. president to reach.
1: That's right, folks. Since he took office, the president has officially lied over 10,000 times! Oh man, what an exciting day. President Trump has officially told over 10,000 lies. Or as he says, that's right, I've told over 1 million lies. (laughs) You realize how crazy this is, right? If you average it out, this means Trump has told an average of 12 lies every single day of his presidency. (laughs) That's a ridiculous number. Like, if Trump was Pinocchio, he could probably tell you what it smells like in China. That's how (laughs) far that is. And what's even more impressive is those 10,000 lies don't even count the times that he told Eric he loved him. Yeah, doesn't include that. (laughs) It's only public lies. (laughs) Only public lies. And look, and look, I know, I know all politicians bend the truth, but Trump clearly has no relationship with the truth. Like, if he sees truth on the street, he's probably like, and you are? (laughs) So if we had more time, we could probably go into details on all of those lives. but unfortunately, uh, life expectancy. So let's move on <laughs> to another story affecting the White House, the Mueller reports. Tensions are flaring between top congressional Democrats and Attorney General Bill Barr ahead of his scheduled House Judiciary Committee hearings on Thursday. Uh, Democrats revealed yesterday that Barr is threatening to skip the hearing over the terms of his
0: appearance. Democrats proposed that the panel go into closed session to discuss the redacted sections of the report, which Barr is actually objecting to, arguing
1: that such closed-door testimony rarely remains private. Okay. This Mueller story is just getting out of hand now, because now the attorney general is refusing to share information with Democrats in Congress, which is wild, right? Because he's America's top cock, but basically he's like, I ain't no snitch. I ain't telling you shit. (laughs) Nothing you do to me is worse than what Trump will do to me. (laughs) Now, in case you haven't been keeping up, right? Uh, William Barr over here, he isn't just a midlife crisis Harry Potter, no. (laughs) He's also one of the few people who's seen the full Mueller report. And the Democrats want him to tell them what's under all of those redactions, yeah? Because the report, that's what it looks like. Yeah, we've all seen it. It looks so dark, it's it's like, it looks like last night's episode of Game of Thrones. You can't (laughs) see shit. You're like, what was that? What was that? It's like the first people to die in that battle was HBO's lighting crew. What was that? (laughs) And aside from the redactions, Another sticking point is that the Democrats want to use lawyers to question Barr at the hearing, right? Instead of doing it themselves. And if that happens, Barr is threatening to pull a no-show, which I'll be honest with you, I totally understand. Yeah, introducing a lawyer to any situation puts people on edge, yeah? Any situation. Someone's like, would you like to join me for dinner tomorrow? Be like, yeah, my lawyers will be present. Uh, (laughs) Ah, actually, I'm on a diet forever. (laughs) Now, if we had more time, we could delve into how complicated this fight is because on the one hand, Democrats legally have the power to subpoena Barr for testimony. On the other hand, if there's a threat, someone would leak classified information, Barr has every right to be worried. But we don't have time to talk about Washington's leaks because we have to cover the world's most famous leaker. That's right, R. Kelly.
0: R. Kelly's defense attorney says charges against the R&B singer need to be dismissed since he can't read. Kelly was charged in a civil case for alleged sexual abuse, but he didn't show up for court, so his accuser won by default. His attorneys, Zora are saying that he was served papers in the case while he was in jail. And since Kelly suffers from a learning disability, he didn't understand what those papers were all about, and therefore, he didn't act
1: on them. Yes, you heard that right. R. Kelly is saying the reason he didn't show up to defend himself in court was because he can't read. And I'm sorry, that doesn't sound like a valid excuse. I mean, there's so many other excuses I would have accepted. Like, I don't know, uh, Google Maps was down, so I couldn't find the courthouse. Or it could have been like, I got trapped in the closet. I couldn't get out, yeah? Or it could just be like, uh, I didn't want to go because I thought maybe you'd put me in jail. Yeah, that's a good excuse. It's also surprising for R. Kelly to come out publicly and say that he can't read, yeah? Although at least now we know how he got his name. His teacher was probably like, all right, Robert, spell your name. He's like, R. Yeah, I'm just gonna go with R, R from now on. Now, on any other day, we would spend time roasting R. Kelly for how he suddenly brings up a reading disability when it's his day in court. But we don't have time to get into all of that because pretty soon we'll all need that time just to get where we're going. Uber drivers are planning to go on strike in seven major cities next month to protest poor working conditions and low pay. All drivers in participating cities will reportedly turn off the app for 12 hours on May 8th, which means no rides for customers during that whole time. The protest also coincides with Uber's first day of trading on Wall Street. okay, wait, wait. So Uber drivers are striking because of poor working conditions? It's your car. (laughs) That's, that's a bit weird. I mean, that's like a homeschool teacher going on strike. Just being like, this school is small and the kids are dumb as hell. (laughs) We support you, mommy, shut up. (laughs) But okay, but jokes aside, I understand why some Uber drivers are going on strike. You see, many of them complain that after expenses, they don't make a living wage. So for 12 hours in some cities, there will be no Uber. Yeah, and I get what they're trying to do, but I don't know if anyone will really notice, right? 12 hours, like, that's how long it usually takes for me to get an Uber, yeah. (laughs) No, I don't know about you, but it's always like, oh, God, all right, and he's turning the wrong way. Oh, no, here he is, nope, now he's on the highway. (laughs) Yep, he's on the, um, he's on a flight to Japan, are you? Are you, oh, man, wait, this asshole, oh, wait, he's reconnecting with his family. Oh, oh, they were estranged many years ago. They decided to bury the hatchet. Oh, I'm so happy for him, one star. (laughs) So if you live in Philadelphia, uh, Los Angeles, or DC, get ready for an Uber strike. And if you need a ride to the airport that day, get ready to find out who your real friends are. (laughs) Now, with more time, we could get into a larger conversation about the downsides of the gig economy. You know, for instance, is it right that they keep task rabbits in cages, we don't know. But we don't have time to analyze U.S. labor policies because in international news, there's so much going down. In Sri Lanka, the government is in disarray in the aftermath of the Easter terrorist attacks. In Spain, last night's election results have come in, and although the ruling party came out on top, the far-right anti-immigrant party won enough votes to get 24 seats in parliament. That's insane. Plus. This is Spain's third election in just four years, which is even crazier. Like even their term limits come in tiny little portions, just like "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm." (laughs) little bit, little bit, little bit. (laughs) And and, and like, I'm sad we don't have the time to cover all of the news happening all over the world because the biggest news that's got everyone talking is from the universe.
2: Avengers fans assembling smashing records over the weekend,
0: bringing in an estimated $1.2 billion in its global debut. Any spoilers were highly
2: discouraged. Don't spoil the
0: game. Buffalo Bills running back LaShawn McCoy not getting the memo and tweeting the ending. Angry fans starting an online petition to end his contract and ban him from seeing future Marvel movies.
1: (laughs) Oh, wow. Come on, LaShawn McCoy. You tweeted out the ending of Avengers? Who does that? How would you like it if I tweeted the ending of your football season? Spoiler alert, the Bills don't make the playoffs. You see, not cool, (laughs) not cool. Now it's not gonna be a surprise anymore. I'll tell you straight, in my opinion, nobody should even be talking about a movie after it ends. All right? If you have to talk about the movie, just do what black people do and talk during the movie, all right? (laughs) Yeah, that's what I love about going to black cinemas. Black people do spoilers in real time. They'll be like, oh shit, Bruce Willis is a ghost. That's what I'm talking about. We're in the movie together. Sorry, I know I'm passionate about this, just I hate spoilers. I hate spoilers more than any. It's one of the biggest reasons I've considered becoming Amish, right? Because if you're Amish, you never have to worry about spoilers, ever, yeah. it's are like, Jebediah, have you seen the new Avengers movie? I don't know what movies are yet, don't spoil it. For more on what to do about spoilers, we turn to a man who still has his Netflix DVD plan, movie expert Roy Wood Jr., everybody.
2: Hello, hello. Roy, yeah, there you go. No, man, with
1: with Avengers Mm -hmm. and Game of Thrones this Mm -hmm. weekend, it feels like every conversation has turned into a spoiler minefield.
2: What can we do? First off, you can stop complaining about spoilers. I'm sick of you people. If you don't want spoilers, go see the movie. That's it. Tired of the excuses. Oh, I got a job. I got a child. So do I. But I still chose to go see Avengers at 1 in the morning opening night. Yes, I miss work. Yes, my kid missed his doctor's appointment and didn't get vaccinated. Yes, the whole school got measles. But the point is, either you want it or you don't. Are you being serious right now?
1: It's impossible for everyone to see a movie on opening weekend. You have to be respectful
2: of all the people who haven't seen it yet. Well, how am I supposed to know who hasn't seen the movie yet? I want to talk about the movie. Here, here's an idea. Here's an idea. When you introduce yourself to somebody, tell them how far along you are in your favorite shows. Just just say your name, then tack, tack that on after the end of your... You know, like right at the end, like right after your agenda pronouns. Here, here, let's try it. Let's try it. Hello, I am Roy. He, him... Game of Thrones, season six. Oh, oh, See that's, that? yeah, that's actually dope. That? Yeah,
1: now, now I know everything about Is you. Is that a lot? Yeah. That's nice, I, I, I can do that. Okay, uh, okay. So, so, so I'd be like, uh, hello, I'm Trevor, Ooh. he, him, Breaking Bad, season two. Season two?
2: <laughs> Don't get attached, they all die. Everybody die. Well, this, Everybody, every character. Yo, you just spoiled Breaking Bad for me? And that's another thing. If it's been more than five years, we didn't spoil it. You took too long. Can't expect me to keep quiet on some shit you should've known by now. Matter of fact, let's just go and run through a couple of the classics. Darth Vader is Luke's father, Fredo gets whacked, and Kevin Spacey was the bad guy all along. Oh, no, Roy, Roy, I haven't watched The Usual Suspects. Oh, no, I'm talking about Kevin Spacey in real life. Well, I I can't tell the difference. You know, cause you're spoiling everything. I don't, like, I don't know, you know what? It's actually assholes like you that ruin social media. I'll tell you that. Social media was built on assholes like me. <laughs> what do you expect from social media anyway? It's the wild west. You got Nazis, woke people, fake Russians, vegans. You think they gonna all come together like, hey, we all have our differences, but let's not spoil Miss Maiselle for Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of complaining about social media, how about you do this? Stay off your goddamn phone. Unplug a little, take a walk, smell the flowers. Your child has measles, he needs you.
1: (laughs) People's children got measles because of you. Whatever, man, fine. I'll give you social media, but okay, you have to agree. You have to agree on this. It's not cool that some people go out of their way to spoil movies for people.
2: That's fair. I'm with you on that. If you've seen the movie, don't be a dick about it. And if you are a dick about it, be ready for the consequences. When they said, don't spoil the end game, they meant it. The cast and crew of The Avengers warned fans to keep the secrets to themselves. And those who did not, oh, they are feeling the wrath. A moviegoer in Hong Kong actually got beat up after yelling spoilers to fans after he walked out of the theater. Yeah. Yeah, Yes. Now, that was a situation where somebody should have gave him the ending to his story. Because if I was there, I'd have pulled the dude to the side. I'd say, hey, man, spoiler alert. You about to get your ass beat. Roy Wood Jr., everybody. We'll be right back. Welcome
0: back to The Daily Show.
1: My guest tonight is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and the youngest candidate running for president in 2020. His memoir is called Shortest Way Home, One Mayor's Challenge and a Model for America's Future. Please welcome Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Welcome to The Daily Show, Mayor Pete.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having so me So
1: good here. to have you here. Um, it has been quite a ride for you, man. It's been a whirlwind. Three months ago, most of the people in the country did not know your name, and now, as it stands, you are sitting at number three in the polling.
0: <laughs> Why do you think your candidacy is catching on like wildfire? I think it's actually all the same reasons that made my candidacy kind of unlikely. The the fact that I'm a mayor at a time when people are frustrated with Washington and looking for different sources of leadership. Uh, The fact that I'm from the industrial Midwest, which is a place that Democrats have sometimes struggled to connect with. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the fact that I'm from a new generation, which I think raised some eyebrows early on. But I think it's one of the reasons why it makes sense to do this. And I think all of those things that we thought might be constraints when we got into it have actually... Uh, help demonstrate that I'm, I'm not like the others and I represent something different. I, I think you're not like anybody, to be honest. No, because w- when, when,
1: when you look at like your resume and your story, it genuinely seems like you were created in a lab specifically to run. No, I mean, listen to this. This is, this, is, this is who Mayor Pete is, just a little bit. I mean, listen to this. You have someone who is a Rhodes Scholar, a war veteran, gay and religious, speaks multiple languages, and you're from the heartland. Uh, you also have executive experience, Like, what's what's the major scandal? You should just tell us now. There's gonna be, (laughs) like, where are the bodies? Are they in the basement? Are they? No bodies. No bodies. Like, is is that just you? Is that how you've lived your life? And then that happened to co- you know to coincide with the presidential campaign, or, or yeah, is this I mean, what you've
0: cultivated in your life? You no, know, I mean most of the turns in my life came as something of a surprise. I mean, when, even when I was interested in politics as a student, I never would have guessed that local government would have been where I found a lot of meaning. Right. Uh, I'm not sure I would have guessed that moving home to South Bend, Indiana, would have been how I would uh, really find purpose and kind of make my uh, my fortunes—not a financial fortune, but you know that 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 my kind of uh, professional life would would be so so fulfilling. Right. I think, you know, so much of this is the element of surprise. I mean, five or ten years ago, you would not have said, you know, if we're going to cook up the ideal presidential candidate, let's have a 30-something gay mayor from the Midwest, right? Um, it's almost like you but- you, you, you come yeah. about at a time when society is yeah. at a place... Yeah, I mean, in no other time in the last 200 years, right, would somebody like me have fit uh, a presidential campaign. But we're living in this moment, maybe the only moment, uh, for the last 200 or the next 200 years. But I think when you're deciding whether to run for any office. Mm-hmm. All you got to do is you look at the moment, you look at the, uh, the constituency, the, the district or the city or the country or whatever office you're running for, mm-hmm. say, what does it call for in this moment? And to my surprise, too, at first, I, I realized that this is a moment that just might call for somebody like me. Let me ask you this. When Bernie was sitting in that
1: chair... <laughs> when Bernie Sanders was sitting in that chair, I asked him if he thought he was maybe too old to run for president. I will ask you the inverse of that question.
0: Do you think that you are too young to be president? I don't think so. I mean, uh, the age to run for president was settled by the founders. It's 35, it's in the constitution, but also around the world you see a lot of leaders who are roughly my age, some of them performing magnificently. Look at the prime minister of New Zealand, mm-hmm. who her leadership was amazing after the Christchurch shootings. Uh, actually younger than I would be uh, when I take office. Uh, oh, uh, I like France, that, when I take uh, office. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Not if, when. I like that. So, you know, I think... It's a moment that's calling for a new generation. And don't get me wrong, I don't mean to say that anybody can or, or, or you know, shouldn't or should run because of how old they are. Right. But you, you know, one thing, we don't think of it this way because they entered our consciousness at different ages. But, but actually, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and Donald Trump are all exactly the same age. They were all born in the same summer of 1946. So three out of our last four presidents wow. come from the exact same generation. Uh, which kind of makes sense because at the time it was the largest voting block in America. Now, millennials are becoming... Uh, it's millennials and boomers represent the two largest generations. And it feels like one of those moments. And what's really been exciting as I uh, address crowds from Iowa to South Carolina is that there are a lot of voters my parents' age mm-hmm. who are even more excited about generational change than a lot of the voters who are my age or younger. You have been part of a conversation that has really spread like wildfire in the country.
1: And it's spread like wildfire... Uh, on on TV as well, in in the media. People speak about Mayor Pete. Um, Some people have said, you know, um, the reason you get so much media coverage is uh, not unlike Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders. You know, some people say you're benefiting from white male privilege, where the media wants to cover you. And um, candidates who maybe would be of different skin colors wouldn't get the same level of coverage. Do you think you're benefiting from that, or, or do you think there's something else that gets the people
0: going that puts you in the spotlight? Well, I'd like to believe it's, it's my qualities and my message, but, but I've been reflecting on this because one of, the, one of the things about privilege, especially things like white privilege or male privilege, is that you don't think about it very much. Uh, you know, it's, it's being in an out-group where you are constantly reminded of it. Uh, it's not when you're in a majority or a privileged group. And so I try to check myself and make sure I I, I try to understand the the factors that help explain why things are going well. Then again, uh, there's a lot of ups and downs. Uh, We're having a very good moment. We've been having a good few weeks, but I'm under no illusion that it's just going to stay like this indefinitely. Uh-huh. We're going to have a lot of challenges as we get from here into the actual voting early next year and hopefully on to the nomination in the election. Uh, but I do think that, uh, you know, there's a media environment that, that uh, kind of pushes people into lanes, whether they comfortably fit there or not. And I do think it's simply harder for candidates of color uh, or for female candidates. And I'm, I'm very mindful of that. The only thing I know how to do about that from where I'm sitting is to try to be true to a message and a vision that's meaningful and to be as respectful as I can of the others. I don't view myself as having opponents, but competitors. Uh, and I think each of us needs to compete based on what we have to offer.
1: I'm gonna keep you around because I wanna get you to some of your ideas for America's future. Uh, don't go away, after the break, we're gonna be chatting more with Mayor Pete Buttigieg. We'll be right back. 2020 presidential hopeful, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Um, In your book, you share your stories, you talk about your life, uh, especially as mayor. What I loved is there's there's an anecdote about you sitting at the desk for the first time thinking, wow, it's day one, what do I do? Where do I begin? What would your day one be as president? You know, Obama said, I'm gonna go for healthcare, I'm I'm gonna shut down Guantanamo. Trump said, I'm here to build a wall. Everyone has the idea of day one. None of them seem to achieve it, but...
0: (laughs) Everyone has the idea of day one. What is your day one as president? I think day one, you launch a package of democratic reforms to strengthen our democracy. Some things that I think we could achieve in the first year, the kinds of things that were in H.R. 1 that the House passed, but that's going to go to the Senate and die there, uh, making voter registration easier, making it easier to uh, get to the polls, but also launching things that are going to take years to achieve, uh, launching a reform to the Electoral College based on the idea uh, that you might say is simplistic. (laughs) That... We ought to give the presidency to ever get the most votes. Right. Um, launching a commission to propose measures that would depoliticize the Supreme Court. I mean, big, deep structural reforms that uh, need to happen, right? Um, not because I'm under any illusion that they can get done in the first few days or even in the first few years, some of these things. But mm-hmm. really to remind everybody that, that one of the most elegant features of our constitutional system is that it's designed to be capable of self-healing and reform. There have been periods when we've not been afraid to have a number of structural reforms. In the 60s and 70s, you saw change to the voting age, you saw the 25th Amendment. Even though the ERA sadly didn't make it, having that fight led to things like Title IX. And then we've been in a drought of structural reforms. Not much has changed. And so when we do have a change to to structures, it's usually in a very cynical way. So for example, a lot's been made of this idea of Supreme Court reform, uh, as though our side of the aisle are the only ones who are talking about changing the court. Republicans changed the number of justices on the Supreme Court. They changed it to eight until they took power again, and then they changed it back to nine. I would like these kinds of changes to happen not in an opportunistic shattering of norms for one party to get their way, but through a systematic set of structural reforms that will make our democracy stronger for the balance of my lifetime. Because every other issue that's so urgent from, I think, climate tops the list, but climate, income inequality, education, gun reform, immigration, you name it, is going to be very hard to deal with if we still have such, uh, uh, such warping of our democratic system itself. It's interesting that you have these ideas that connect with obviously
1: democratic voters, but you have the challenge of selling some of these ideas and the idea of your presidency to people who may be in the middle or have voted for Trump. And, you know, uh, some of the people who voted for Obama went on to vote for Trump. People have shown that they can switch their affiliations. How do you sell some of those ideas to somebody in the heartland? If somebody's a Trump supporter and you say to them the electoral college is something that needs to be changed, how do you sell that type of idea to somebody who feels like or has been indoctrinated to believe that those are their ideas?
0: I mean, some of it's just plain English. So saying like, in a democracy, don't you think the way we ought to pick our president is to give it to the person who gets the most votes? Um, some of it, I mean, that shouldn't be- That seems very simple. A... <laughs> yeah. It's so simple that I don't trust it. Something's <laughs> weird. And you know, what I've found, cause we have a lot of people where I live who did that. They voted for Obama and for Trump. Many of them also voted for Mike Pence for governor and me for mayor. Uh, and one of the things that shows you is that it's not all about ideology. I think a lot of people want to know, they may have values and, and ideas, They also just want to know what these ideas mean in their life. And so part of that's when we're talking about our democracy, that we're all better off in a better democracy, but also when we're talking about something like healthcare, Climate change, Mm -hmm. a great example where I'm afraid still that when we think about climate change, our mental imagery around it is usually something from the Arctic, right? It's a polar bear looking for a habitat. It's a piece of ice falling off the ice sheet. When I'm thinking about climate change, I'm thinking about neighborhoods in South Bend in my Midwestern city devastated by two historic floods, a thousand year flood and a 500 year flood that happened less than two years apart. So saying, look, this is a safety issue for you and me, Mm -hmm. not something that's just happening out there in the atmosphere, out there in the Arctic, but in our homes, in our neighborhoods where Nebraska's underwater, California's catching fire, South Bend's at risk of greater floods. And the more we can make it concrete like that, the more it's not only politically effective, but I also think philosophically better because if we can't explain or, or validate a policy in terms of how it's going to make our everyday personal lives actually better, right? Then why are we even out here? Let, let me let me ask you about the Mike Pence versus
1: Pete Buttigieg. Um, it seems like it started out of nowhere for many people. You know, it seemed uh, Mayor Pete came out. That's you, by the way, came out <laughs> and um, and said, um, you know, if Mike Pence has a problem with me, he should take it up with my creator. And and this has turned into a conversation in and around religion in America. You have an interesting idea, and that is that for a long time people on the right have claimed religion. But you believe that there's a religious left and religion as a whole is something that people can be interpreting differently. How how do you sell that message, and do you believe that on the left religion is as strong as it is on the right?
0: I think it absolutely can be. I think there's a great tradition of the religious left that's not getting enough attention. I mean, you look at the civil rights movement, which is certainly a a product of the religious left in some senses. You look at the work that's going on right now, Uh, in order to uh, help lift up the the conditions from from immigrants at the border uh, to poor people across this country. Um, And what I think it signals to us is we've got to do away with this idea that the only way you could think about the implications of religion and politics is from a right-wing perspective. Now, I'm careful when I talk about this because anybody in the political space, I think, has an obligation to be there for people of any religion and Mm -hmm. of no religion. But I also can't miss the fact that when I'm in church and I'm hearing about Scripture, about... Uh, taking care of the least among us and humbling yourself and visiting the prisoner and taking care of the stranger right. uh, and, and uh, uh, lifting up the poor, that has some political implications, and they are radically different from the behavior of, of uh, conservatives who present themselves as religious.
1: That's just just as one of the, 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 the conversations that has followed you on the trail recently. It's been you and, uh, and Mike Pence. Um, more recently, you've been thrust into the news Um, in and around issues regarding voters who are black. Mm. You know, people have said, Mayor Pete, it feels like you have a blind spot when it comes to black voters in America, you know, uh, whether it be the fact that in South Bend, when South Bend's economy rose up, black people didn't rise up as much. You know, they stayed in in poverty. Um, You know, you've had issues in and around conversations around the black police chief. What do you think you're going to do, or how are you going to appeal to black voters and and connect with them, because I mean, everyone has an area where they're strongest when they're running for president. Um, Today you met with Reverend Al Sharpton. You got any knowledge or, or is there any idea that you would change in how you communicate with black voters
0: specifically? Well, I think a lot of it's the importance of outreach. So there are people who will find their way to you, and those are your core supporters. And then there are the people who will never hear from you unless you reach out to them. And it's one of the reasons why we're in South Carolina, for example, in a couple of days. And we'll really be uh, proactively making sure we're engaging, uh, whether through the faith community or, or in other ways, with, mm-hmm. with black voters and black neighborhoods. This was important for me back home, too. Not everybody knows that South Bend is a racially diverse city. We're about 40, 45 percent non-white. And I prided myself on, on winning re-election uh, in minority districts as well as whiter districts. Right. But that, that happened through a lot of lessons learned the hard way. As you mentioned, we had some very painful issues, especially in my first days and months as mayor around race and policing, uh, around neighborhoods. uh, We have a lot of racial inequality in our city. Um, Not because we want to, uh, but uh, it's shown me that good intentions are not enough. You have to have intention around your policies. And we're working on everything back in South Bend from black entrepreneurship to investing in historically disinvested neighborhoods. I think the same thing has to happen at the national level. Look, these racial inequities didn't just happen. They're not an accident they're in many cases the consequence of racist policies, which means we have to have not just non-racist policies, but anti-racist policies if we're ever going to see these things equalize in our lifetime. Uh, And I may not be able to convince every voter out there to be for me, but at the very least, I need to make sure that every voter out there knows that I'm for them.
1: It's interesting that you say that and you, you, you've commented so much on policies and ideas that you would have for the nation because recently, you know, you took flack, I think it was at the CNN town hall where, the, you know, uh, it was Anderson Cooper who said mm-hmm. to you, hey, um, you are one of the only or one of the few candidates who does not have any policy on their website. Mm-hmm. And then your response was, well, I don't, I don't want to inundate people with the minutia of policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, is, what does that mean, per se? And, and, and you know, d- does that mean you don't trust that people will be able to handle the ideas of policy, or do you think that policy is not as important as people think it is?
0: So I think every candidate has an obligation to present the details of our policy. I've sought to do that in in kind of Q&A format, but I recognize that we'll want to continue doing that in written format, whether it's things that we'll be adding to the website or things that we'll be putting out in policy addresses on specific issues. What I'm getting at when I say this, though, is that we need to make sure we don't get trapped at the level of policy design without also talking at a higher level about the values that motivate our policies and at a ground level about what those policies mean. Give me an idea of so, what that means. Well, so for example, on education, uh, you know, I, I believe some very technical things need to happen. Like um, you know, right now when you get uh, student loan debt forgiven on income-based repayment, uh, that's, that's taxable and I don't think it should be. We'd be better off if it weren't. Stuff like that, technical but meaningful. Um, but the, the biggest thing we need to do around education is have a secretary of education who believes in public education. So So you're saying focus more on the values. So I want to make sure that we start at the broad strokes so that people, when we get into the more technical stuff, and we will, um, that it's understood where that's coming from and how it all fits together. Instead of just presenting all the technicalities and expecting people to be able to kind of guess or derive what our values must be Mm -hmm. by looking at all these bullet points in our white papers. It's not that I'm against having the white papers. It's that I want to make sure that we lead with our values so people can put the papers in context. When you
1: speak to voters who are concerned about your experience or lack thereof, you know, you you hear echoes within the Democratic Party or whether it's uh, centrists who say, you know, Mayor Pete Guy's great. He talks a good game. But I mean, does he have the experience of Joe Biden? Does he have the experience of Kamala Harris or Cory Booker? He, He doesn't. And I'm worried about that lack of experience.
0: How do you respond to that? I actually think experience is one of the best reasons to vote for me. I know that sounds a little cheeky at my age, but the experience of being a mayor, I think of a city of any size, but especially in the strong mayor system we have in Indiana where there's no city manager, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are dealing with these issues up close and personal every day, whether it's homelessness or poverty or race and policing. You're not debating them in a committee. You are, you are having to manage them. I mean, one minute, we could be dealing with an economic development puzzle about incentives for somebody who's saying they're gonna add jobs. And the next minute, we're having a parks and recreation controversy over moving a duck pond. Um, and, and, and then that's when you get the call that there's been a racially- Did racial you move lead. the duck pond? Uh, we're working on it, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. It's, that's a long story, but it's, it's gotta move. The ducks, the ducks will be better off. Um, but, um, but the, just when you're having a good laugh about that is when the phone call comes in about a racially explosive officer involved shooting where you don't even have all the facts and you gotta figure out what to say on television mm-hmm. to try to hold the community together. And what you learn is that the job has not just a policy element, um, not just a management element, but also this, this intangible part, the moral part of just calling people to their highest values that's actually probably the thing we're most grievously missing right now in the White House. And we really need it. It really matters. So look,
1: one thing I've always enjoyed about you from the beginning is uh, you're not afraid to jump into uh, the sticky side of uh, conversation. And uh, I've always appreciated your ability to take a step back and go like, oh yeah, maybe I could change that or evolve. The book is fascinating. Your campaign is proving to be as fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me <laughs>